So what I want to do today is, is, in a sense, not quite wrap up the stuff we've been talking about, but maybe sort of tie it up a little bit and then kind of press on in a slightly different direction. And, and it has been interesting, actually, to, to be doing these two sections because they're never quite the same. And sometimes a question here will work its way into next week's class on Zoom or something on Zoom will work its way in here. And, and we had a little bit of a discussion in the Zoom class about nostalgia. And that was actually kind of interesting. And then and, and I think it works well as a way of doing what I had wanted to do with the first part of the class anyway. So I, I do want to talk about nostalgia as a way of getting at um, this feeling of displacement, which I, I would say is kind of characteristically modern. And by modern, I don't just mean contemporary, our lifetime. Uh, but just the, the sort of the modern era of, of at least sort of Western, what we think of as Western civilization, Western culture. Uh, so going back maybe to the 1600s and, and, and certainly by the early 1800s. Um, and, and the history of nostalgia, and it does have a history, so it has a, the concept, the word, the idea has a history. Um, I think in a sense validates that perspective, that somehow there's something unique about the way that we've organized modern society that generates nostalgia as a response. And so, for example, I have a line here from Edward Casey, um, and he's, he's a philosopher who's actually done a lot of work on place. He almost kind of single-handedly made place a sort of sub-discipline of philosophy over the last 30 years or so. Uh, and he has a book called Getting Back in the Place, which is sort of a classic in this genre. Anyway, in there, he, he has this little um, passing reference to nostalgia. He says, if nostalgia, excuse me, if nostalgia is a characteristically modern malaise, this may be due to its covert recognition that a time once existed when place was the first of all things when time and space in their modern guises or disguises were not yet fatally at work. And so really what I want to hang on to from this line are two things. One is the idea that nostalgia is a characteristically modern malaise. That is that it's something that's sort of in some sense uniquely tied to the experience of modernity. And then the second thing is that where Casey says that this may be due to its covert recognition, dot, dot, dot. In other words, that, that nostalgia, if it is in fact characteristically modern, then it, it serves as a kind of symptom in the same way that a doctor would read a symptom as a manifestation of some underlying problem, some underlying disorder. In the same way, nostalgia is a symptom that then signals to us some underlying disorder, social or, or psychological, um, that, that we would do well to sort of look at the symptom and say, okay, what's going on that's generating this symptom, right? That's, how, I guess, how I want to treat nostalgia. Um, before that, uh, I, had a, I have a paragraph there from Walker Percy, who is a, himself a, a medical trained as a medical doctor, became a novelist slash philosopher, and he was um, a Catholic layman as well. And he wrote a book called Lost in the Cosmos, which came out in the 1980s, and it's a, a parody of a self-help book. And so it's kind of funny and interesting 
but really wise and, and poignant as well. Um, and he, he has this paragraph early on in the book where he says, with the passing of the cosmological myths and the fading of Christianity as a guarantor of the identity of the self, the self becomes dislocated. Now again, notice how it's a, it's a place-referenced metaphor, right? To be dislocated is to suggest that we, we're out of place or that we've lost our place. So uh, with the passing of, of these myths, the fading of Christianity, the self becomes dislocated. It is both cut loose and imprisoned by its own freedom. That's a very um, interesting line there that would be you know, worth reflecting on, that, that freedom cuts us loose but also imprisons us. But then he says this imprisonment, or, or excuse me, yet imprisoned by a curious and paradoxical bondage like a Chinese handcuff. The, the trick of the Chinese handcuff is the more you struggle, the more uh, it, it sort of claps onto you. Uh, so that, he says, the very attempts to free itself, for example, by ever more refined techniques for the pursuit of happiness, only tighten the bondage and distance the self ever farther from the very world it wishes to inhabit as its homeland. This is very profound. Um, then he goes on, he says, every advance in an objective understanding of the cosmos and in its technological control further distances the self from the cosmos precisely in the degree of the advance so that in the end the self becomes a space-bound ghost which roams the very cosmos it understands perfectly. Um, one way of saying what, what Percy is saying here is, is he argues in this book and elsewhere that the more we as human beings become knowledgeable about the world in a sort of scientific sense, uh, the more lost we feel in it. And um, I, I shared this um, paragraph with you because I think it, it captures well, I think, this idea of, of displacement, which has roots in our sort of physical experience of place, but as we've been suggesting all along, uh, also has what we might think of as sort of psychological, emotional, moral and even spiritual uh, dimensions and, and layers to it. And so essentially, as the title of this book suggests, right, Lost in the Cosmos, um, this, the modern self is lost. It has lost itself. Um, as, as Percy suggested, that loss has in fact um, been paradoxically related to the freedom that the self has gained. And I would say, I, to fill in between the lines here for, for Percy, uh, because that freedom has, has been a freedom that we may characterize using Simone Weil's language as the freedom of having been uprooted from things that would have constrained us but also rooted and grounded us. So we, we've framed our uprootedness as the cost of freedom, a certain kind of freedom, and, and it has been a cost. And so um, if we, as, he, as Percy suggests here, the, the curious thing about it is that the, the more we sort of double down on the very things that have cut us loose, the, the further we are from sort of solving this new problem that we experience, uh, this displacement, this loss of the self. Now, let, let me come back down to the question of nostalgia then. So Casey suggests that it is characteristically modern, that it's a symptom, what I, what I would gloss as it being a symptom of an underlying condition. And then before I kind of launch off on that, um, on that discussion, 
just one last quote here, and this is by um, a scholar named John Strabinsky from an article called The Idea of Nostalgia, and he writes about the history of nostalgia. He says, at the end of the 18th century, so late 1700s, people began to be fearful of extended sojourns away from home because they had become conscious of the threat posed by nostalgia, which at this time was considered a medical disease. It was a clinical condition. Uh, people even died of nostalgia after having read in books that nostalgia is a disease which is frequently mortal. Now, that's fascinating on a number of levels. One, we just don't think of nostalgia that way. Um, two, that it would have these sort of physiological um, characteristics to it is striking as well, uh, and that people would fear it in this way. So that was the, just there to give us a sense of, of, of the historical emergence of nostalgia in this period, um, and how it, it was very specifically connected to place. I think when people talk about nostalgia today, it's, it's more about a time that has been lost, right? You know, so people are nostalgic for like the 50s or something like that, you know, or there's a, uh, Yuval Levine has a book that came out a couple, maybe just a year ago, where he says that our, our two political parties are, are captured by nostalgia. On the right, a nostalgia for the 50s, and on the left, a nostalgia for the 60s, right? But they're both sort of stuck and can't kind of get beyond that. But in both cases, there's an example of nostalgia as, as being connected to a time period and the feel of that time period or the, the, the social experience of that time period. But before it was a, a, before it was connected to time, a kind of temporal disorder, it was, it was very literally a, um, a disorder related to place, a loss of place, a literal homesickness, right? It was, a, it was a sickness that resulted from being separated from one's home. Now, um, let me ask a question at this point. So when you think of nostalgia, if I say to you, somebody's being nostalgic, do you read that uh, as, what's your immediate sort of reaction to that? Do you read that as a, a negative thing or a positive thing? Like, how do you think of what we generally call nostalgia? I consider it positive in the same, well, Okay, it's an interesting connection there to romantic love. Uh, yeah. Any other? to re 
like neutral, possibly neutral, right? like a melancholy flavor to it. So I asked the question of, of how it strikes you, because my sense is that it, 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 to say that somebody's being nostalgic is almost always something pejorative, right? You're, you're, you're basically saying that they're doing something wrong, right? That they need to kind of snap out of it. And we often talk, there's, there's a way of framing this in terms of uh, being nostalgic for a time that never existed, right? That, that somebody's sort of, rom it's, it's connected with the idea of romanticizing the past, right? Uh, or having a kind of rosy uh, colored, um, rosy tinted uh, apprehension of some past time that ignores its faults. And, and then of course the idea that well, you can't go back to the past. So to be nostalgic is, um, is, is somehow not to be active in seeking the, the change that the present requires or something of that sort, right? So it, it's often presented in a, in a fairly negative way, right? Um, and, and maybe that's sort of just characteristic of some of the academic circles in, in which I've run. Uh, but I think it's, that's also kind of generally, um, generally true. But, but I would agree, you know, certainly um, with the idea that it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Now, I, I do want to grant that it can be weaponized, right? It can become toxic, right? There are forms of nostalgia um, that very clearly can be used to um, mobilize political movements that take on um, a very negative, destructive um, tenor to them, right? So, so having recognized that, then, you know, I, I want to maybe suggest that it, it doesn't just have to be that, right? That's not the end of it. Because, you know, Lauren, you, you talked about it as a, as a longing, and I think that that's that's, that gets very close to the idea of what nostalgia is because it often, I think, presents itself uh, as a desire, right? Uh, when, you're, when you're nostalgic for something, it's usually for something that is no longer, right? It's, nostalgia is always, now correct me if, if I'm, I'm wrong here, not, you know, if you have counterexamples, but it seems to me that nostalgia is always uh, desire for an absent object and often, if not always, an unattainable object, right? So it's, it's desire for something that can no longer be, right? Your youth, uh, although of course you're all still flush in your youth, um, but at some point we might you know, uh, be nostalgic for the loss of our youth, uh, for the loss of childhood friendships, uh, for the loss of uh, loved ones, or uh, for you know, the, the feel of our grandmother's house. Um, there, there are, all, what all of those have in common, of course, is that they can't be recaptured, right? You can't, get back at them. You experience the longing, um, and so it is a longing. You want something that you don't have, and yet it, you know that it can't ever be 
fulfilled, right? So that's, I think, what gives it a sort of taint of, uh, not taint, but it's a tinge of melancholy, um, that there's a kind of sadness attached to it. Um, I mean, does that, does that make sense? So the reason that you know, I, I bring it up is, is because I, I do think that what it, what it reflects, or what is it a symptom of? It's a symptom of a degree of displacement and transience and mobility um, that may be uniquely modern, right? That our, our experience as modern people is one where we feel ourselves cut off from places and, and even sort of temporally dislocated. It, it, that, that distinction between nostalgia being connected to place and time, and I, I grant that it's kind of difficult to kind of parse those very precisely, um, but that distinction I think is a real one, and it, it tends to reflect an earlier dislocation in place when mobility becomes very easy and there are, there's a lot of migration of peoples and uh, a lot of um, movement of peoples that then leads to this longing for home that is lost. And then it does become sort of a longing for a certain time, and that does, I think, tend to reflect, uh, in the view of some scholars, that happens especially after World War I, and it does tend to reflect these ruptures in the social fabric that seem to disconnect you from these times, right? When I talked about Simone Weil's idea of rootedness, one of the key characteristics, I think, of rootedness is essentially a, a me- that you have a, there's a measure of stability. Right? It's not just that you are staying put and thus getting your roots in place. Right? It's that the ground has to remain relatively stable for roots to take, take root. Right? And so when what you have in modernity is basically a constant churning of the ground. Right? There's an acceleration of the pace of social life in such a way that even if we are desiring to, uh, to, to put roots down, right, to, to find our place, uh, to, uh, to stay put so as to cultivate a community, the larger cultural and social fabric is always sort of working against us. And so as a result of that, nostalgia becomes sort of a characteristically modern disposition because we are constantly and forever dealing with the sense of loss that is created by the dynamism of modern society, right? Now, there's, you know, there's a famous phrase in economics, um, a creative destruction, right? Which is to say that you, you do have destruction, but it ends up being creative, right? It's generative, right? You destroy old things to make new things, and it's, the new things are good in their own way. Uh, but you have a lot of that, you, you have a lot of that going on. Uh, and then, you know, you also have, um, again, let me back up a moment. So it's that, that dynamism that is characteristic of modern life that contributes to this experience of social acceleration, which leads then to this, this experience of the self being displaced from place, literally, but even from time, and thus the, that generates for us the experience of nostalgia. Does that make sense? Okay. So in other words, all of this is to say, again, by way of, of tying some of the themes from the preceding classes together, that what we, what we do see in, in the modern world is that the pace of technological change, the economic dynamism of modern societies, um, the ability, to, the, the, the ability to, to literally just be able to pick up and move from place to place, sometimes the necessity of doing that, 
the way in which we have splintered families apart, right? The, the, the way in which all of our, maybe, um, you know, you have a, a sibling or two or three siblings and, and they now, they don't even live remotely near one another, right? They're displaced. And so the, the anchor of the family has been sort of lost. All of these things, again, have, have been the product of processes that have had their, their positive aspects, but they've, they've all along come at this cost, right? And the cost is, is this uprooting of the self, this experience of displacement, uh, and hence the, the feeling of nostalgia. Now, uh, to kind of wrap that thought into the, the moral and spiritual aspects of it, one of my very, very favorite um, essays is C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. And if you haven't, every time I mention it, I always say, and if you haven't read it, this is your, you should just do that tonight um, and put aside whatever else you have to do. So in it, Lewis has this interesting discussion of, uh, of this desire, of, of uh, longing that in his view we all have. We have a hard time acknowledging it. Um, he has a beautiful little paragraph prior to this uh, line that I've exerted here where he you know, talks about how um, we, we, we can't quite acknowledge it to ourselves. We're a bit embarrassed by it. Um, when, when we feel it, um, we seek to suppress it. Uh, he says we, we call it names, we call it nostalgia, we call it adolescence, we call it romanticism. Um, it says it often manifests itself uh, in moments where you've experienced um, beauty in a profound way uh, and, and this longing kind of creeps in. And so then, at, at the end of all of this, he says, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door, which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. In other words, what Lewis is saying here is that nostalgia, uh, understood in this, in this rather profound way, right, that as he's, as he's argued in the essay, that nostalgia is not necessarily simply for a place or a, a moment in your life, but for something that came through that moment. And, and ultimately he would say that what's coming through those moments is something of the beauty of God. And so we long for it. We seek for this kind of uh, at-homeness uh, and that we're right to seek for it because this is what we've been created for, right? And so that the, the truest index, that is to say the, the, lead, the best indicator of our real situation may in fact be this longing that we call nostalgia and very often dismiss as mere nostalgia. What this, I mean, I think obviously Lewis is right at the theological and spiritual level. I think this is, uh, uh, you know, again, at the heart of Augustine's notion that we're restless until we find our rest in God, right? that there's something in us that is longing to find a certain degree of satisfaction, um, a certain joy, a certain sense of belonging um, that ultimately can be found only in, in relation to God and communion with God. And, and so, that, that is right, I think. But then also that there is something good that has been lost as well in our experience and that nostalgia is a symptom of that, right? That, that formula, I think, works, works also. 
And so um, all of that kind of sums up the idea that we are, we've been displaced. And then these displacement, this displacement manifests itself uh, in this longing. We have a longing, right? And it's unanswered. And we all sort of know it. Uh, and the longing is real and genuine. And this is why I don't think nostalgia ought to be dismissed. It's interesting to ask along the same lines that, you know, you said sadness is not always a bad thing. It, it, you know, I mentioned today in the Dante class that, again, Lewis talks about education being the work of teaching our hearts to feel appropriately, not just to think the right things, but to also feel the right things, so that if something is uh, properly repulsive, we ought to be repulsed by it. If it is properly beautiful, we ought to be drawn to it. Uh, and that that often is not just a natural thing that happens with everybody, but rather something we have to, that involves a kind of moral and spiritual training. And so if, if something is sad, it would be disordered of us to not be sad about it, right? So if we read, you know, read the story of um, you know, some migrant children uh, that are you know, dying as they're trying to cross the border with their children, with their parents, um, that should evoke sadness in us, right? If that doesn't make us sad, something's wrong, right? We would say something, something is broken there, right? Um, and so if, if nostalgia, if we've interpreted it in the way that I've suggested here, uh, it, it's, not, it's not wrong to be nostalgic in the sense that it is recognized, a way of recognizing, or as, how does Casey put it, right? It is um, the covert recognition, right? That something has gone wrong in the way that we're ordering our lives and the way that society is ordering our lives. And so we, it can be hijacked, right? Just like any of our emotions can be hijacked and turned towards um, illicit uh, or immoral purposes. But the, the experience itself is grounded in a genuine loss. Does that make sense? Okay. Any thoughts on, on that? dates back to the late 1700s. And, and already, I think we talk of that world as the modern world, right? So um, all of these dates are kind of arbitrary, right? But I think a lot, most people sort of date the modern world from roughly 1600 onwards, right? Now, I think the intensity of these disruptions um, maybe comes, uh, becomes, it becomes more intense by the time you get to the 19th century. Uh, and I, I would attribute that to advances in, in technology, industrialization, um, and then all of its sort of byproducts in society that lead to greater, um, greater displacement in place. And then, again, I didn't develop this very well, so maybe it might be worth going back to it. The idea of social acceleration. So I'm borrowing that from a, a German sociologist, and what he, what he calls social acceleration is a, a series of, of different kinds of acceleration. So um, he talks about te technical acceleration, where the rate of technological change uh, is increasing. And then as a result of that, social patterns sort of change, right? So, uh, you know, for instance, in, in our own lifetimes, right, we have seen 
the advent of uh, digital technology and internet connectivity and devices that we get to carry everywhere that are all the time connected to the internet, right? So that's a technical advance. And that has, you know, dis it's disrupted the existing patterns of life, right? So um, something as simple as the, the work-life balance. When, when I can, when my employer, say, not here at the study center, but in theory, right, can reach me via email uh, at any hour of the day, the, the line drawn between home and work blurs, right? So we all sort of know this. Um, and so you, you have new patterns of life that are emerging as a result of technological change. And then on top of that, that, that acceleration, he, Rosa argues, the German sociologist argues, it, it leads us to then adopt what we think of as time-saving technologies, right? So we, we look for things that will help us. We feel that we're drowning and things are going too fast. And so we look for things that are going to uh, save us time, um, make us more efficient. Um, but in essence, then, what we're doing is we're just feeding back into the same cycle because that accelerates the rate of technological change, which then accelerates the rate of social change. And then we're, it's just a, a, um, a self-perpetuating cycle, essentially, right? Um, now, it's a big book, so his argument is extended, and I think, but I think he's right about this. Um, and so that sense of, of, of social acceleration, right, that things are getting faster and that we're having a hard time keeping up with it, that's that idea of, of the, the, the society around us sort of constantly churning, right? So we never can quite get um, a handle on things, right? We never quite feel like, okay, I can catch my breath. I have a sense of, of where I am, what I'm to do, who I am. Um, my place in the larger order of things, because the, even before we have a chance to get there, things have, have changed again on us, right? And some of this is by choice, some of this is not by choice, um, but it is sort of the nature of things, right? I mean, the easy contrast to this um, is the, the idea that your grandfathers, say, not your fathers, but perhaps your grandfathers, um, may have worked at the same job for 40 years and retired with a pension, right? In other words, they, they, their whole adult life was connected to one firm, one job, and they were done, and they got a pension, and they retired to Florida, and that was sort of just very predictable, right? Um, and I think it's unfathomable to us that any, any of us would have one job for 40 years, right? That we would have a career. Um, it's unfathomable not to some people that they might only have one job at any given time, right? That you're not working two jobs or three jobs, right? Um, I mean, the whole sort of gig economy is premised on the idea that I'm going to juggle two or three different uh, rotating jobs throughout a day. Uh, and, and so you can't even get a sort of fixed routine in a week, week over week, much less month or year over year, right? And so that rate, that flux, uh, I think is part of what keeps us essentially perpetually uprooted, right? Uh, we, we're dislocated. Uh, because of it. So to long for a sense of stability, um, I think is, is only human, because I think what we're recognizing is that we can't flourish under these conditions, right? We feel assaulted by these conditions. And so that's, I think that's all kind of wrapped up into this um, experience of the modern world that displaces us and then leaves us longing for something, right? And maybe we don't even know what, right? We're just for something different, right? 
um, with only a vague sense that, that things have, have broken somewhere along the way. Um, does that make sense? Any other thoughts or comments along those lines? The juxtaposition with the C.S. Lewis quote is interesting because um, you seem to be arguing that there's a distinctively modern issue here. And I always took his uh, just the way of glory as being some kind of absolute human experience. And I'm curious what yeah. like pre-modern background Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I, again, it is interesting because there are these two, at least two levels that I'm switching back and forth between, right? The literal and then the, the spiritual. Um, I think with, with Lewis, I think the answer is that, that he would say what's changed is that we don't acknowledge the desire for what it is, yeah. right? And so that's why he says we call oh. it names, yeah, yeah. right? And, and whereas I think he would think that um, throughout the better part of Christian civilization at least, uh, you you at least you could acknowledge the desire, its true source, yeah. and thus address right. it, right? Yeah. Um, and so that that might be the difference. Yeah. yeah. And that's why you know that connects with the Percy quote, right? Having discarded, uh, you know, what he says first are the the old cosmological myths, right? There are these myths that that tell a whole story about the creation of all things, our place in it, and the end of all things. Uh, all of those sorts of myths, um, you know, are pass away. And then, and then, also this, um, what he calls right the, um, or the, just Christianity, the fading of Christianity, right? It's, uh, it's loss of, of cultural authority, right? It's no longer our default metaphysical setting for, for Western civilization, um, and so we have we have n nothing else, right? Um, we have increasing knowledge about the way the universe works, um, but that knowledge doesn't translate into meaning necessarily. In fact, there's a famous uh, line by a, a, a physicist, I think it might be Steven Weinberg, I can't quite remember right now, uh, but essentially he said the more we've come to know about the world, uh, the, the more dead it has become to us, right? He puts it a little bit more eloquently, eloquently than that, but, but that's, the yeah, that's essentially what Percy is arguing. Yes. He's kind of trying to get his father, who's traveled farthest in space exploration that anyone has gone yet, and he's been mm. on Neptune anyway, or like orbiting Neptune. And when he, oh, I don't want to ruin the movie, but well, you've <laughs> already started, so. <laughs> actually your search for knowledge 
did have its mm. actual conclusion because you didn't find anything. <laughs> but because it wasn't open-handed, like, oh, I, I wonder if I'll find something. It was he needed to find something. But he yeah. was like, but you, you got yeah. what you were looking for in that now you know that me and you, humanity, what you're responsible for in your family is real. And it is the only real thing that you can yeah. find. And so it's, it's very interesting because the yeah. further he huh. goes, the more dead, the more yeah. he's losing his mind right. trying to find meaning. Yeah. There's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard Kristen's about that. I hadn't watched it. So yeah, maybe I'll put that back on my... Um, I didn't really like... That, no, no, that's, that's, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. That's good. That, that is interesting. And it, it does sort of, uh, I mean, from what you've described, kind of matches Percy's um, um, kind of whimsical sort of argument in this um, uh, parody of a self-help book um, that we are the the creature that knows that has come to know the most about the universe also has uh, is the same creature that knows the least about itself right yeah um, good now I have a um, I, I wanted to again seg segue as it were so so have that discussion sort of for the time being at least sort of kind of capstone the first two or three weeks of the class um, but then kind of transition, I want to pivot on uh, the, the experience of, of the body and its significance to place. And so in a sense, what we're doing is, is coming, you know, very, very, you know, from, from cosmological myths to um, right literally here, right, our, our, our bodies as being sort of central to the experience of place. And then I, I had wanted to do this in, in part by, um, excuse me, in part in order to then examine the contours of our sort of digitally mediated experience of place. And, and we'll, we'll get to that, but I, I couldn't really get there unless we first discussed the, the role of the body in our experience of place. And so I have two lines from a French philosopher of the last century, uh, Merleau-Ponty. And he was very, uh, he, he made his name, so to speak, in uh, his work on, on the body and its role in perception, how we sort of perceive the world. And on the one hand, it may seem like it's barely worth saying that the body is really important to how we perceive the world. Of course it is, right? But on the other hand, I think it's been part of the, um, the modern understanding of the self that the body sort of takes a back seat to the mind, right? That we think of ourselves essentially as, as uh, cogitating creatures, right, as, as thinking things. Um, in, in more recent memory and in Christian circles, um, James Smith has you know, really made a lot of this and trying to recover the significance of the body uh, for the human experience. Um, and, and he draws quite a bit actually on the work of, of Merleau-Ponty. And so uh, on the one hand, it may seem like an obvious thing to say, but on the other hand, uh, actually no, not really, because we, we have tended to see, our, to see the mind-body uh, dualism as sort of uh, defining us, and we privilege the mind rather than the body. There's a long tradition of that, um, to, to even to seeing the body as a kind of prison house of the soul that we need to escape. Um, and, and even I think that's manifested itself in, in, at some times within the Christian tradition, although the, the Christian tradition should have known better, because in the biblical understanding of the human person, we are fundamentally embodied creatures by design and by destiny, right? 
So we are created, fashioned out of the dirt of the earth, ensouled and declared good, right? That status as ensouled bodies is good. So that's how we're created. And then we are, the, our hope is grounded in the resurrection of the body, right? So that we do not just, uh, aren't, don't ha- we don't have simply the immortality of the soul as a Christian doctrine. We have the resurrection of the body as an essential part of Christian doctrine. So that in, in creation and in eternal destiny, we are fundamentally embodied creatures. So the body matters. So, you know, for, instead of saying, for instance, that I have a body, right, the more proper formulation is that I am a body, right? The, the, the self, the, the I is indistinguishable from the body. Maybe not indistinguishable because there's this sort of um, mystery of the uh, intermediate state, right? So the souls of the departed before the resurrection of the dead in, in the Christian tradition, uh, they have a sort of unique status. I don't want to speculate very much about that, but what is, I think, safe to say is that that intermediate state, whatever it is, is incomplete. It is inadequate, right? Um, those, in that state, we will await and long for the resurrection of our bodies. So that being said, the place of the body, here are two of um, Merleau-Ponty's lines on this. He says, for instance, far from my body's being for me no more than a fragment of space, just this piece of something in space, there would be no space at all for me if I had no body. And then the second line he says, actually, let me pause for a moment. What time is it? Because I have no watch or phone with me. It's 5.03. Oh, it's 5.03, so it's a good thing I checked. All right, Um, let me very quickly read the second line. He says, there is therefore another subject beneath me for whom a world exists before I am here and who marks out my place in it. This captive or natural subject is my body. So this may seem like a kind of rather confusing statement, but what he is saying is, is that there is a subject beneath my conscious subject that is sort of the ground of that awareness, that subjectivity, and it is the body, right? Um, and one way of thinking about this is to sort of recognize that you, you were you before you were aware of being you, right? In other words, you, in your mother's womb, you were you, but you had no idea that you were you, right? Self and the totality of your being are not perfect overlapping circles, right? And so there's a part of us that is part, it's part of but distinct from what we might think of as our conscious awareness. And, and part of that non-conscious, and I, I avoid unconscious so as not to suggest something um, Sigmund Freud-like, Rather, it's a non-conscious aspect of the self that is intimately tied to the body. So while we are sort of consciously aware of our surroundings, what we're saying, our body is also doing some work for us um, in ways that are very important to how we perceive the world, to our experience of place. And so what we'll do is then just pick up um, with that next week.